HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Brooklyn Slate Company, a manufacturer of slate cheese boards, coasters, and other fine items. For more information, visit brooklynslate.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli. Uh, before we get started, uh, I do want to make an announcement. We have a uh, our annual charity event coming up for the Epicurean Group. It is called Not My Day Job, and it is going to happen on October 27th. It's going to be a ton of fun. This is our fourth Not My Day Job and uh, I think I think we figured out how to do it at this point, but it's a great uh, talent showcase for a bunch of people in the industry. Uh, there's going to be a, a ton of cocktails, great beer uh, provided by Captain Lawrence Brewing, uh, gin from Green Hook, Green Hook Ginsmiths, a bunch of great restaurants, uh, and you'll get to see some industry people singing and dancing, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a really good time. Uh, if you're interested, come and join us. Uh, tickets are available at notmydayjob.ev. Eventbrite.com. Uh, and now, without further ado, we have here a, uh, a really good buddy of mine. Every time he's in town, I make sure that uh, we get to hang out, uh, including last night. We had a, a, a tasting and dinner at La Picho um, here with Abe Schoner, who's the winemaker of the Scolium Project, um, also makes wine here in Brooklyn at the uh, Red Hook Winery. Um, and he's a good buddy of mine. So I'm, I'm Abe. I'm super excited to have you on the show. Glad to be here, Joe. <laughs> um, so Abe makes makes wine in California, uh, in New York, both upstate and uh, Long Island, um, and a little bit in France still. True. And a little bit of France. So, um, but when we when we decide to open up uh, La Picho and have a list with a ton of American wines on it. Um, it was definitely, I was excited because I'd, I'd finally get to, uh, to, to work with Abe also on a professional level, other than just, you know, hanging out with, with Abe either at the bar or, uh, at, at one of our restaurants. Um, they were the first wines on the list. We had his Necratus by the glass, uh, a delicious, delicious wine. And, uh, Abe, I'm just super excited to have you on the show. I, I can't, I can't say how excited I am that you're here. 
Thank you. I'm blushing. So before your life as a winemaker, um, you were a professor and, uh, and before that, obviously, a student of philosophy. Um, to what extent do you look at making wine as a philosophical pursuit? What a place to start. <laughs> when I started making wine maybe 10 or 12 years ago, I really thought that it was something divorced from the previous endeavors of my life. I don't think I looked at it philosophically at all. But what makes me really happy is now that I've got, I don't know, a certain kind of um, firm foundation in winemaking, I can start thinking about it the same way that I used to think about studying philosophy. So there was... Uh, for a while, I would say a huge chasm between the two parts of my life. And is now, that because at, at the fr- at the beginning you're just trying to figure out the practical nature, like how do I physically do some of these things? And now that you understand practically how to do it, you can look at it more it's, deeply. It's really true. There was just one practical question after another, and it felt so different from philosophical questions. Well, now that we're at this point. How does that inform? What, what, what are some of those philosophical questions that, that you look at when making wine? So last year, I decided to stop doing regular tastings as part of the way in which I traveled around the country and supported the sales of my wines. I decided instead to give lectures on topics that were of interest to me. In D.C., I worked with paintings from the National Gallery in uh, New Orleans, I talked a lot about architecture. And these these lectures, which I called metaphysical lectures, they gave me an opportunity to start thinking deeply about my own winemaking. And I would say by the time I finished maybe the 12th lecture, which I gave in Napa right before harvest started, I finally had a grasp on, maybe not a grasp, the beginning of thinking about what it meant for me to make wine and to think about philosophy at the same time. And I talked a little bit about it last night in answer to a question that one of your audience members, one of the guests at the tasting asked me. It's, um, sorry for my long and circuitous answer. What it comes down to is this, is I realized last year at the completion of my metaphysical lecture series that making wine is not so distant from thinking about tragedy. And the biggest reason for that is because When we make wines, we're engaged in making something that is meant to fall apart. Are you saying it's meant to fall apart because you've you've crafted this this object that is then going to be consumed? Is the act of consumption when the wine falls apart? Or is it that if it's not consumed, it will eventually no longer be drinkable and what, what at what point is the the falling apart happening it was in conjunction with the lecture that i gave in dc on painting and the lecture that i mentioned um, that i gave in new orleans about architecture that i realized that we can have an appreciation for a painting without in any way destroying it appreciation for architecture for sure without in any way destroying it but you can't do the same thing with wine wine you have to consume so, yeah, that's the beginning of it. That's the way in which it's something that is meant from the beginning to fall apart. But as I thought more about it, I realized it's not just consumption. It's what we call something like the aging or maturation of wine. Aging is, both for human beings and for wine, a kind of falling apart. That's very interesting. So not only is the the wine falling apart, but it's... Uh you can also look at the wine in the context in which it is consumed, which doesn't necessarily happen as much with 
a painting or a piece of architecture. A painting is in a museum and everyone goes and sees it in the museum, maybe at different times of day or before or after lunch, and maybe they feel a little bit different. But the the bottle of wine, even if it's from the same vintage, from the same barrel, um, if you've even if you're opening up on the same day, you're, the atmosphere in which you're doing it, the people you're with and, and the food you're, you're, you're eating it with, all of that certainly has to inform the, the wine experience as well. Absolutely. It's not like sitting in a theater and pretty much, maybe some people have the good seats, some people have the bad seats, but uh, it's the same performance, just you're a little closer or further away. It's so different. It's so, so different. It was... It was- one of the pleasures about doing events like the one that I did last night is consuming my own wine in the context of other wines. It's something that I told you that I really wanted to do when we first began working on this. I wanted to drink my wine together with the same kind of wines that you and I would drink together, completely separate mm-hmm. from anything involving the Scolium project. Wow. That's, that's important for me. It's important for the wines to be in a kind of civilized context provided by other wines. Yeah, and it's the first time I've ever done a, a, a dinner or a tasting with a winemaker where the winemaker said, I want to also showcase other wines uh, and talk about why I love these and how, how they're important to me. And I think that's one of the uh, the things that I, I appreciate and admire most about you is, this, is you're constantly curious and inquisitive and appreciative of the good work of, of others. And and allowing that to help you to to formulate your own opinions and, and learn from that, uh, which you don't always see with uh, with winemakers. So I I very much appreciate that. I'm a student. Yeah. So tell us, give us a little update as to how things are going um, in Red Hook. I know that you guys had quite a, a, a lot of damage after Sandy. It's really wonderful because there there are really no traces of the horror that was wrought by the storm. The winery was pretty much destroyed. There were no barrels that hadn't been picked up and tossed about by the storm. There were tanks over on their side, woodworking that was destroyed. It was really brutal. And maybe 20 of us put the winery back together over the course of a week or two, and we got back to work. We finished the harvest last year. Then over the course of the winter, lots of work was done to put in new floors, to put in to put in walls. And um, we did a tally just yesterday, and we think that when we finally bottle the wine from 2012, I had thought that we were going to save a really large amount of it, but it looks like we're going to finally be able to bottle maybe 20% of our wine. Oof. Yeah, it is, it is brutal, but it wasn't a total loss. But the wonderful thing is the winery is completely back on its feet. We're about halfway through this year's harvest already, and things are purely wonderful there. Mm. Do you think that being in Red Hook imbues any kind of uh, uh, characteristic to the wine? Whereas if you and the whole team had that same winery, but you were out on the North Fork or, uh, or, or in California with the same grapes, the wines would be in any way different? It's really hard to answer that. I mean, I, I feel like the answer is both yes and no. Yes, in a way that I'm sure of. We put the winery in Red Hook on purpose, and maybe another way, another way to say it is not that we put the winery in Red Hook. The winery was born out of Red Hook. Mark Snyder and I had spent a lot of time there at his instigation. Mark's the president of the winery and the man who distributes my wine, Scolium Project, in New York. His office had been in Red Hook, 
And I spent a lot of time hanging out there with them. We thought the neighborhood was amazing. And we asked ourselves at what point, what could we bring to the neighborhood? Instead of just basking in what was really excellent about it, what we wondered could we do? And I think it was Mark's idea that we would build a winery there. So in some sense, it's not just that the neighborhood affects what we do. We created that winery to be part of Red Hook. Yeah. And now Red Hook is, what is going on with Red Hook now? There's a, a brewery. There's it's some new spinning. restaurants. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Pock Pock. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> so I can't even tell you what's going on there. All I can say is our winery sits on the water. We look at the water from both the front and the back door. Mm-hmm. And what I, I shouldn't say focused on, but really mesmerized by, is all of the marine traffic. It's amazing to be making wine surrounded not just by water, but by boats. Yeah. And what, what is uh, this vintage going to be like? What are, what are you working on at Red Hook? Because it's still a relatively new project. It's only the third, third vintage, right? 2008 was the first year in which we made wine. So fifth vintage, I yeah. guess. Yeah. And it looks like it's going to be one of the best vintages ever for Long Island fruit. Long Island is an extremely difficult place to grow grapes. Um, the Finger Lakes, <clears throat> somewhat challenging because of the cold climate, but I think not as punishing as Long Island. Long Island is punishing because of the humidity and the rain. It's one of the most difficult places I know of in the whole world to grow grapes. This harvest looks fantastic. It looks really like one of the one or two best that I have been involved in. And for the growers who've been working out there 20 or 30 years, I think they would say the same thing. Wow. And so an excellent vintage in Long Island would be a dry vintage. That's exactly that? right. Okay. Yeah. And so this we had a lot of... Yeah, we had a, a strange. It's it's interesting being here in New York because the our our weather is so similar to Long Island, so you you know you can talk about a vintage and actually remember what the what our own weather was right. like. It's one of the few places where you can do that. You know that's why we think what we're doing is important because there's almost nowhere else in the United States where there's an urban center so close to a grape growing region. In San Francisco, really close to a lot of grape growing regions. But the weather, even though you're maybe 20, 30 miles from where the grapes are grown, the weather is so radically different. You could be 100 miles away. You can't make the same kind of judgment you just made. Yeah, I remember. Like, oh, this is, yeah, we had a, a mild kind of August. In July, there was a heat spike. But I, I, I remember that as a, you know, my personal experience of weather this year. And that is actually how the grapes are experiencing it as well. That is true. That's extraordinary. Uh, and so what do you think are the great benefits to Long Island? Why would you choose to make wine in such a challenging place? I'm, I'm still mystified at why the grapes can be so good. I don't understand it. I don't understand it from a geological perspective. Everything that I think I know about grape growing says to me that Long Island should be a disastrous place to grow grapes. And I don't just mean the weather. I mean the soil doesn't look promising either. There are soils that I work with both in France and in California they really look on paper like A-plus soils for growing grapes. I don't know any soils like that on Long Island. But here's the amazing thing. The fruit that we work with is as good or better, especially for making white wine, as any of the fruit that I work with in California. And I am mystified. I don't know how it's possible. Well, wow. in California where you, you get sunshine and it's relatively even year to year. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to be back with more with uh, Abe Schoner from the Scolian Project and Red Hook Winery when we get back. Mm-hmm. 
Brooklyn Slate Company is a collaborative effort from Brooklyn graphic designer Sean Tice and Parsons graduate student Christy Hedeka. After visiting Christie's family slate quarry in upstate New York in the spring of 2009, the two grabbed a few pieces for use as all-purpose boards back home in Brooklyn. They found a number of purposes for the slate and began gifting pieces to friends. The response was so overwhelmingly positive that the two struck out to produce a line of slate products. They now make regular trips to the family quarry in upstate New York to hand-pick their favorite pieces of black and red slate. Some of the slate is sourced from the quarry graveyard, a collection of odd-shaped pieces that were ultimately destined to be ground for use as road cover or baseball diamonds. They then transport the pieces to their studio in Red Hook, Brooklyn, where they do additional cutting and clean the stone to be food slate. Every single piece of packaging that comes with their products, from the envelope to the burlap bag, can be repurposed for other uses. The end result is a product completely unique in cut, shape, color, and overall presentation. For more information and to order, visit brooklynslate.com. We're back with Abe Schoner from the Scullion Project in Red Hook Winery. Um, we were talking a little bit about philosophy before, but I, I, I am curious uh, um, to go back to more of these practical questions as well. Um, Abe, you're someone who is dividing yourself between uh, two coasts and Europe. Um, how do you plan out your time so that you're able to get all of this done? I wish I could say I planned. I don't plan. I wait until when I have the opportunity to move from one place to another, and then I jump on it. So, for instance, when um, uh, I was preparing for this visit in California, I really didn't know on what day I was going to be able to come out here. A friend got married last Sunday, and that was it was always my goal to be able to leave California, go to his wedding, and then come to Brooklyn after the wedding. But I didn't know, I really didn't know until maybe the day before the wedding whether I'd be able to get here or not. I thought that I might have to go right back to California. And what informed the the decision as to when you were going to fly? Was it when the grapes were coming in? Or? That is that's such a good question. So what's going on now in California is this. We've brought in all of our grapes, and we had done so. I think our last harvest was just about a week ago today. And... What that means is that there is fruit now fermenting at the winery, and the fruit that is fermenting requires constant care and attention, but not intervention. And in other words, there's not so much to do. We're working on red fermentations now, and we're making sure that we're getting everything we can out of the skins of the grapes, and that means doing a kind of foot treading. I mean, the picture that people have in mind somehow comes from... 60 years ago of I Love Lucy stomping on grapes. That's something that we do three to four times a day on our red fermentations. That's something that can be done without a high degree of judgment. You have to be careful, but you can kind of set yourself a schedule, know that you're going to be doing it. And once we began um, with that stage of the winemaking, I knew that it was possible for me to get out of town and to spend about a week away. Mm -hmm. Why do you opt to use... This very ancient method of foot treading. That's a good question, too. Is it too. A, a romantic notion? It is, is it for practical? sure romantic. And it's practical to this degree. There are machines that you can use to do the work 
on a larger volume of wine. The volumes that we make are so small that it really seems appropriate to work on a human scale, to make wine in containers that are roughly the size of human beings, not the size of buildings. You can use machines, you can use tools that are driven by human power to work on those small fermentations. Nonetheless, you create some kind of distance between you and the wine when you do that, even using a stainless steel tool. So there's what you might call a romantic or maybe a philosophical notion that I want us, the people who make the wine, to be as close to it as possible. And that means we get our hands and our feet into it. It's also true, I discovered this during the harvest of 2010, that the typical tool one would use to work the grapes at this point in the winemaking is a tool that doesn't necessarily do the best job stirring things up, moving things around. It can tend to compact the grapes. And if you use your arms and your legs, you feel what's happening without there being the mediation of a tool. And you can make sure that you're distributing things in the best possible way. And you can be sure of that because you're in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I... I I like this idea. I just, I, I do like the romantic aspect of it. And I think that wine without a sense of, of story and romance is just uninteresting. If it was all made perfectly by computers, I think it would, it would lose some of the human connection. That, that gets back to what I was trying to say earlier about tragedy. There's something not just romantic about wine, not just tied to stories, but there does have to be something imperfect in it for us to love it. Wines that are perfect and without irregularity and challenge, I think those wines have a hard time holding our interest. I think you're right about that. I, at least uh, I, I believe that as well. Um, I always talk about the, and maybe this is not the best analogy, but uh, if you were to buy a table from Ikea and it was perfect, no nicks, no dings in it, um, and put that into your living room, that would add so much less uh, to that room than if you were to, to go antiquing with your, your loved one and you go and you, you find some, you know, you're in the Hudson Valley and you find this, this table that's made from, you know, an old Amish barn and you bring that in, you're like, ah, oh, I remember the place where I got that from. It has hundreds of years of history. Um, and how much more, even though there are nicks and dings and it's not perfectly straight, it, like that, that has so much more of a story and so much, it's so much more human than the thing that you bought Ikea in a two-inch box that you then assembled. Yeah, I agree completely. <laughs> um, so Abe, I, I, do, I am very interested in what is going on right now in California. And you have a, obviously a, a good uh, finger on the pulse is that as someone who makes wine in California. But what I've been noticing is that, um, at least from my standpoint as a wine buyer in the East Coast, there's more and more uh, wine being made in California that is not made according to sort of a recipe book, uh, pre-prescribed style. Um, people are, are becoming more creative. Um, have you, what has been going on since you started um, and, and I think you're very much part of uh, 
part of this and what makes me feel this way. Um, and what's what's going on now? How have things changed over the years? Because it's for me as a, as a wine buyer, it's it's very exciting to see what's going on. It's a new world. It's amazing, and it's something that I think I have. I have close friends who are also part of what you might call this movement, and I think that I think at the beginning of it, we had no idea that it was even taking place, much less that somehow we were helping to fuel it. But now there's no way around it. We look around, and the landscape that we started working in 10 or 12 years ago, that landscape has changed radically. And I think that what we're both thinking of is this. Napa used to be dominated by certain kinds of estates that made certain kinds of wines. The wines had a really high degree of excellence and consistency, but the consistency came maybe at the price of homogeneity. Napa has now been, I don't want to say torn apart or turned on its head. That's too strong. But instead, all these interesting little fissures have opened up. And inside the fissures, people are suddenly making wines that also are excellent, might or might not be consistent, but are anything but homogenous. Yeah. And... What and this has changed in the ten years that you've been in ten years. It's it really is remarkable. I mean, I'm thinking I did a I did an event with you last night. Mm-hmm. Tonight you're doing another event with two of my best friends and two of the wineries from California that I admire most, Steve Mathiason and Robert Sinsky. And I would say Sinsky was one of the leaders that helped bring us to where we are now. Steve and I are more like followers, but we're doing a lot to fan the flames. Steve makes wine, I think, exclusively from grapes from Napa, at least for the Matthias and mm-hmm. label, and so does Sinsky. Sinsky makes a lot of Pinot Noir and other interesting wines, including a Cabernet from right on the edge of the Stag's Leap, the Stag's Leap District. Steve makes a Cabernet, a Cabernet Merlot blend, but he doesn't say Cabernet or Merlot anywhere on the label. It's a red wine. It's a red wine that is marked as much by his passion for farming and not so much marked by, I don't know what to call it, but something like a Napa paradigm. Yeah, a wine that doesn't necessarily try to fit into what you assume a Napa wine is going to be like. That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, Something else I wanted to uh, ask you about, and I I have brought this up to you over the years, but the first time I've ever encountered uh, one of your wines was uh, a wine that that uh, you don't make anymore, but uh, I really loved it. It was the Vare Vineyard, uh, and my friend Alex Zink, uh, uh, who's now uh, he just left McGrady's as a sommelier, and and he's going to open up a restaurant in uh, Washington D.C. that everyone should look out for in the spring. It's going to be amazing. Um, but Alex uh, and I were were roommates, and he brought me this bottle. Um, a verve, which was actually, which he encountered at Per Se, was being served at Per Se. Um, and this was back in 2006 or 2007, and it was a skin macerated Ribola, I believe. Everything you say is correct. Everything is correct. Um, and I, I don't know of anyone else who's doing anything like that at the time. Um, you probably do, but uh, pretty forward thinking for Napa. So if I tell you a little bit, um, a little bit of background about that, it might help explain exactly what is going on in Napa and what the origins of it were. George Vare is a man who had been working in the wine industry since the 60s or 70s. He had been involved in taking Behringer private. He'd helped create Luna Vineyards. 
Behringer is really an emblem of not just old Napa, but stretching back to its, its very origins. Luna was a really interesting venture that he created with a partner of his that was already outside of the Napa paradigm because Luna, a Napa Valley winery working with Napa Valley fruit, was not going to make Cabernet or Chardonnay. They devoted themselves to making Sangiovese and Pinot Grigio. So George was always something of a rebel and creating things outside of the central paradigm. When he had brought Luna to a great degree of, um, not perfection, but really accomplishment, he decided to create something new, and that was Vera Vineyards. He named his project after himself, and the foundation of those Ribola Jala cuttings that he'd gotten from Josko Gravner in Friuli. George really helped give birth to a lot of what people like Steve and I are doing, and it was from coming out of Behringer through Luna, and then somehow ending up with, of all things, skin-fermented Ribola Jala in Napa. Wow. Could not have made more of a 180. Um, and that was an extraordinary wine. It was one of the wines in my life that um, I looked to as, as something that was uh, very, uh, I want to say influential, but but made me look at wine in a different way. That's uh, wonderful. And, and I love that. And um, fast forwarding to your 2012, uh, Prince in his caves, um, which is your, uh, skin macerated, uh, white wine from the Scolian project, uh, which I tasted the 2012 last night. I think it is, uh, beautiful and much, uh, much more, even more aromatic and exuberant. Um, and I, what I really like about that I find in, uh, Grovner's wines as well is that you look at the color and think, all right, th- this is going to be super oxidized, uh, maybe funky, a little off. But then the aromatics are so clean and pure um, and and just have a lot of energy and life to them. And I, I really like that about the wine. Well, it's something, it's something that I learned by accident, not something that I was seeking to find out, that there are a lot of wines in the world that are invigorated by their interaction with oxygen rather than somehow being exhausted. Yes. Um, the one question that I asked you last night, but it's something that I think about often because I am a, a big fan of these skin macerated white wines. Uh, and your answer was not the answer that I thought you'd give. Uh, but I guess that's, that's even better than hearing the answer that, uh, that you want to hear. But my, I had always proposed and assumed, uh, as, as long as, not, I shouldn't say always, as long as I had been aware of, uh, of orange wines and had fallen in love with them, that an orange wine represents the full character of a white grape because you're not removing the skins. The way a red wine, if you were to remove the skins and try to make a red wine, you couldn't express you know that that grape uh, in in its fullest way. No one no one would say that you can make a a fully complete red wine without skins. So why is it that we say that white wines you can make uh, an expressive full white wine with, without the skins? Uh, so that I, I always felt that an orange wine really represents the the entirety of the vineyard, the entirety of the grape. Um, but you f- you feel potentially otherwise. George Vera, who you asked me about a minute ago, brought me to Friuli twice. Once when I was the winemaker at Luna, and then second when he and I began working together on the Vera project. And he introduced me to his winemaking friends 
and the people that he wanted me to learn from in Friuli. And it took me two trips to grasp this, but there are two opposed cultures in Friulano white winemaking. They're the people who believe strongly in skin maceration and the people who are really strongly against it. And I came to realize that to a high degree, there was a geographical distinction between them that in general, the people who worked with hillside vineyards like Gravner and Radikon, they favored skin fermentations. And in general, the people who worked in the plains, still on rocky soil, but rocky like river soil, they almost always were against skin fermentation and were and thought that the best way to make wines is express their terroir was working only with juice, not with skins and seeds. And I thought of um, I thought of this as an opposition almost between the Hatfields and the McCoys. The the two schools would really feud with each other, and especially the people who made wines on the plains. Mm. They thought that the people who made the hillside wines with skins, that they were crazy. And what they thought was that the skins get in the way of expressing terroir, that they bring almost too much to the wine. And it's related to something else that we talked about last night. The people who make the wine in the plains, they believe that their wine shows their terroir with a high degree of transparency. And I think that they think that the wines made on the hillsides with skins, the transparency is lost by bringing skins in. I don't have a position in this. I've learned from both of them. And it's not just that I admire both kinds of winemaking, but as you heard last night, I devote myself to both kinds of winemaking. And I feel that each one is an excellent way to express terroir with, I think, not any loss on either side. In other words, you talk about throwing away the skins and that you might be losing something. I can't deny that, but what you gain is what the guys in the flatland call transparency. Hmm. Wow. It is always a pleasure to talk to you, Abe. I, I, every time, even if it's just hanging out over a beer or a glass of wine, I feel like I, I learn. Um, but especially in a, in a situation like this or, or one of our tastings or, uh, or events, um, folks out there, <laughs> um, let's make the 2013 Red Hook Winery uh, even more successful than in the previous vintages and try to help make up a little bit for uh, for that 80% loss from last year. Um, the wines are outstanding. You can find them at La Picho and uh, the Momofuku restaurants and tons of great restaurants here um, in New York. Uh, Brooklyn Wine Exchange has... Uh, we, we, uh, Alyssa and I just bought a, a couple of them over at Brooklyn Wine Exchange, a uh, great wine shop, uh, down by Carroll Gardens. Anyway, Abe, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show. Joey, thanks so much. Um, and thanks to all of you for listening. I hope to see you at, uh, Not My Day Job on October 27th. Make sure to pick up your tickets at notmydayjob.eventbrite.com. And we will chat with you next week on In the Drink on heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. 
You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.